you, Jesse. Thank you, Olivia and Taylor. I, you may be seated. Yep, everybody, everybody did it. Very good. I grew up, I, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in uh, the Show Me State, Missouri. Uh, it's a fine, fine place. And uh, what, what's interesting, though, is um, there's kind of a grand irony to that nickname, the Show Me State, because apparently nobody in Missouri said, show me why that's our nickname, because there's a lot of confusion surrounding the origins of that nickname, the Show Me State. The, the best guess, the, the most popular explanation, is uh, a, a statement from Willard Duncan Vandiver, who was a U.S. Uh, representative from the state of Missouri. And in response to, I don't know, probably some East Coast, you know, uh, speech, fancy, eloquent speech, he said this in the House of Representatives. I come from a state, this is in 1880s, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. Right, frothy eloquence. It's a good, it's a good line, right? I want nothing to do with that. Show me what you're talking about. And it's a common sentiment, right? I'll believe it when I see it. Talk is cheap. Like, let's, let's see what you're talking about. Okay, so Jesus in this, at this Feast of Booths, this important Jewish holiday in the fall before his death, he's been in Jerusalem. And we've been, I think ever since we've been in this setting here, we've been looking at Jesus's interactions at the Feast of Booths. And he's been making these soaring claims like soaring claims, claims that are also difficult to grasp. It's not frothy eloquence, but it's, it's uh, difficult to discern truth. He says, I'm, I'm a river of life. Come to me and you'll not, you'll not thirst. You'll have living waters. Moreover, living waters will flow forth from my believers, from my people. Uh, he's also said, I am the light of the world. And my people likewise are lights of the world. He said, uh, we looked at it last week, every one of you is enslaved to sin. And the only way to be free is for me to set you free. I can do that. Now, on this day, Jesus shows them what he's been talking about. Like, he's going to demonstrate all the things that he's been saying for the last two chapters in the Gospel of John. He's going to now show in this vivid picture He's going to bring all of what he's been saying into focus. And so what we're going to consider this morning is the place of Christ's work, the place where Christ works, the pace of his work, and the nature of his work. So place, pace, and nature of the work of Christ. So first, the place of Christ's work. Look at, look at verse 1. He passes by, and it says, he sees a blind man from birth, and the disciples see the blind man as well. Look what, look what they say in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they ask kind of a question that's sort of a natural question. You know, sin has consequences. Our sin brings trouble into our lives. It's sort of an inevitable consequence of sin. Um, the sins of our, of our parents bring things into our lives. 
Um, and that's true. I mean, think of all the examples of children that are born because of, of a drug or alcohol abuse of a parent that are born with mental uh, challenges, difficulties because of the sin of a parent, something they had nothing to do with. It's just sort of an inevitable result of, this, of the sins of the parents. And, and likewise, we bring sin into our own lives through our own sinning, okay? That's, that's true. But here's the thing. Throughout the scriptures, the process of trying to pinpoint the source of any given problem in our lives to a particular sin or a sin of a, of a, of a you know, parent is, is, is not considered wise. It's not considered wise at all. Um, and yet we're still tempted to do it, are we not? We see a beggar on the side of the road and we think, oh, they're lazy. They're lazy. They just couldn't get it done in the, in the workplace. It's the sin of laziness. Or we see somebody that struggles with heart problems. You know, they, they, they ate poorly, too many hamburgers, too high it's cholesterol. That's the problem. It was poor eating habits. It was sin that caused the, the heart problems. Or maybe there's a, there's a marriage on, on the rocks and we say, well, you know, their parents, their parents did get a divorce. And so this is kind of what happened. And Jesus is saying, look, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, this is the wrong line of questioning. This is not the line of questioning that you need to take. You remember Job's friends in the book of Job? They, they did the same thing, sort of opining on the sources of Job's suffering. And it wasn't, it wasn't wise in that instance, and Jesus here says that as well. Look at, look at what Jesus says in verse 3. It's not that this man sinned or his parents. Like, wrong question, Jesus says. It is so that the works of God might be displayed in the blind man. And this brings us to, this, to the place where Christ works. And we've seen it already. Places of brokenness, places of darkness are where the light of the world comes and does his work. In these places and pockets of brokenness. It's where God does his greatest work, right? The violent storms on the Dead Sea. We saw it there. We saw it in, in a situation marked by hunger. We saw it for, with a lame man that was lame for decades. Jesus keeps showing up in these places of brokenness and darkness, and he does his work. This is, these are the places where God works. And I have to ask, like, are you worn down? Are you despairing? Do you have some sort of trouble? Maybe you can't even admit it to anyone. It's a struggle. And you feel broken. You feel the darkness of it. These are the places where Christ works in our lives. This is what he showed us throughout, throughout these Gospels. His life and ministry was one example after another example after another example of Jesus going to the darkness and bringing light, bringing healing, bringing, bringing life to those places. Now, the God, and this is unique we talked about God at the beginning, the call to worship. God is a unique God. His works are like none other. You can't find another God on the, on the planet that's not derived from the Abrahamic God that has care and concern for the broken, marginalized, dispossessed, weak. It's so unique. The gods that we create side with the strong. That's what they do. But not, not the Lord God, Yahweh. Over and over again, he's, he's, you, we find him among the broken, the marginalized, the sick, the hurt, the aching, 
And it makes sense. You know, the, the, it brings glory to God. The best doctor. The best doctors, over time, are defined by their ability to work and serve in the most broken down health situations. The people that are in the most dire health situation, maybe it's brain surgery, maybe it's heart surgery, maybe it's cancer treatment. Those doctors have the most experience, the most specialization. You travel to find them. They're the best doctors, right, that you can find because the level of brokenness is the greatest. Think about the, uh, the football field. Sports, for example. The center fumbles the snap. The quarterback, now the ball's on the ground. The whole play is broken down. Breakdown across the team, across the field. And what happens in that moment? Well, the best, the best athletes, the best quarterbacks, that's when they rise. That's when they see their game. That's when they see the incredible nature of their abilities because they can make something out of nothing. They can take that sit, play breakdown and they can create a touchdown out of it. Or maybe it's a teacher, a uh, student who has severe mental difficulties, learning differences, and all sorts of challenges. The best teachers can help those with the greatest breakdown in their minds. And so it is with God. He does his greatest work in the situations that appear most hopeless to demonstrate his power and his greatness. And these are the places where, where Christ works, these places of breakdown and, and, and darkness. So now, second point, let's consider the pace of Christ's work. The pace. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now notice, you get the sense of urgency, right? That's the pace. It's an urgent pace. The work of Christ, there's a sense of urgency. The world is dark. It's not going to be day longer. And what, what he's referring to there when he says, uh, we, we got to do the works of the Father who sent me while it is day because night is coming. He's referring to his looming death, which is just six months away, right? Because this is happening in the fall. In the spring, he will be crucified. And it will become, as we talked about a few weeks ago, during the day, it will become dark because of the spiritual significance. It's darkness over the earth again. And Jesus is saying, look, the time is short. We got to do my work while I'm still here so I can demonstrate what I'm doing across the universe right here in Palestine. So I want to keep demonstrating that for the next few months. So we got, to, we got work to do. That's what he's saying to his disciples. Now, what he says to his disciples, talking about this period, this unique period between the Feast of Booths and his death in the spring, applies to us as well. You know, Paul in Ephesians, we may remember last, last year when we were looking at Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 16, redeem the time, make the most of the time, because the days are evil. That there's, to our work of ministry, there's an urgency. Christ is coming, one. The days are evil, two. That we've got work to do. One of my kind of, I enjoy American history, American religious history. And one of, the thing, one of the groups that get a lot of focus in American history are the Methodists because they almost single-handedly transformed American religion. 
and, and, and their, their footprint is behind every, every denomination. And one of the things they did so well, they had this sense of urgency. While Presbyterian and Episcopalian ministers were going through a five-year ordination process, they were sending ministers out to the frontier to evangelize a young country uh, for Christ. John Wigger, a historian, says this. In 1750, 2% of church people in America were Methodist. 100 years later, 1850, 34% of church people were Methodist. And it was, it was the work of these circuit ministers and pastors that went out onto the frontier. I mean, their, their circuits were incredible. They, they covered 300 to 500 miles in a four-week period, like before the automobile. This is on foot in the middle of nowhere, backcountry. Uh, and they would have 30 to 60 preaching engagements during that one-month period. That's like two to three a day making these enormous circuits in, in, in the frontier. In fact, there was, like a, there was a running joke at the time that if you went to the far reaches of the American frontier, you were likely to find bears, buffalo, natives, and a Methodist preacher on horseback. <laughs> uh, there was a sense of urgency to what, to what these Methodists were doing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like we've, There's a window of time. The days are evil, as Paul says, Therefore, we must work with a great sense of urgency. Now, finally, I want us to consider the nature of Christ's work. And we see it in verses 6 and 7. Look at, look at what he does. Verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud, or we might say clay, with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, the blind man did, and he came back seeing. Jesus heals him, right? He heals him, as we would expect, as he's been doing throughout the gospel. He heals. Now, what's interesting, though, is the procedure that he does to do the healing. Was it necessary? Was, is he trying to teach us something? I believe he's teaching us something very important in what he's doing. And John wants us to see something as well. The word, the word uh, no, notice the nature of what he does. He spits in the ground, on the dirt, he makes it into mud, and then he puts the mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash. And we think, what is going on? What is he doing in doing this? Why did he have to go through this little process? Well, there's a very important uh, meaning behind this word, for mud. It's the, it's the Greek word palos. You could translate it clay. Palos. And what you find, uh, if you look, whether in pagan sources or Christian or J Jewish sources, you find that this word palos is regularly used to describe creation, the gods creating out of palos, God creating out of palos. I'll give you a few examples. The Stoic philosopher Ep Epictetus says this, the body is Clay, or palos, cunningly compounded. It's mud, cunningly compounded. That's what our bodies are. Aristophanes, uh, a Greek, says this. The humanity is an artifact of mud, or clay, or palos. Job, in chapter 10, verse 9, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says uh, he, 
he acknowledges that he was molded by mud by God. And so, what, and we could go on, but suffice it to say, the word palos means creation. This is stuff out of which we've been made. Moreover, uh, the, 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 the person using, the God using the palos has an authority over it. And so there's two things that are sort of embedded in the use of this word. One is Jesus's authority, and two, his recreative power. His recreative power and his authority. Jesus is saying, look, you got broken eyeballs? No problem. I'm the one who spit in the dust and formed you, oh man. I can correct your eyeballs. And I'll use the same method I used at creation. I'll spit in the dirt. I'll apply the mud to your, to your eyes. I've got recreative power. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, John is telling us too this. Look, this is only the first fruits of a new created order that Jesus is building by the power of, now by the power of the Spirit in our midst. A new creation. You see, we tend to think, and this is probably why we think of religion like an ice cream flavor, we tend to think that like spiritually what we need is a little refinement, maybe like a, you know, like a spiritual etiquette class where we learn to kind of button ourselves up and be mannerly and kind and all of those things. And that's not what Christianity says. And I don't even think it's what we believe, you know, deep down. We need nothing short of a complete transformation. A spiritual refinement, like getting a little spiritual tailor to kind of take in a few areas and let loose a few areas, that's not going to cut it for us. We need new hearts. And Jesus is demonstrating to us in this very miracle, I've got the power to make things new, to make all things new as, as we learn in Revelation. And he's already told us we need the new birth. Remember? Nicodemus? You must be born again. He told us, and now he's showing us, I can do it. I've got the power to make you new with, 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 with my power. I've got recreative powers. And what, the, the way that this brings everything into focus is that Jesus is showing us that this man's physical state is a picture of our spiritual state. That we are all blind with broken spiritual eyeballs and we need to be made new. And, you know, here, another thing to note about this, the blind man doesn't go looking for Jesus. I mean, how could he, right? He can't see a thing. He's just, he's totally helpless in, in the situation. Jesus comes to him. And so it is with us. He comes to us. And um, this is, I, I mean, take your pick of what metaphor is used to describe our salvation. We're the bride of Christ. The groom makes the proposal to the bride to make her his bride, right? We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're made alive in Christ. That's a passive act. Dead people don't raise themselves to life. Brides don't make grooms their groom. It's the other way around. Um, every metaphor that we have, our enslavement to sin that we looked at last week, slaves don't make themselves free. They're set free. See, Jesus initiates the work. Leslie Newbigin says this regarding this. this, this uh, he says, the blind man's faith will be the result, slowly matured, of Jesus' action, not its precondition. In other words, God comes in, the Spirit, 
In this instance, Jesus, and he awakens, he opens eyes so that people can see. And then his faith develops out of that. And the faith, faith is the fruit of the work of Christ, not its root. Faith is a gift given by God, but it has its source in God and in the Spirit. Okay, so what, what does all of this mean? I, I want us to try now to apply this miracle that Jesus has uh, performed uh, to, to us today. As we said, it's a sign of, of the soaring claims that Jesus has been making in the Feast of Booths. It's a sign of those claims, and it brings that into focus. But we, we shouldn't just see a blind man receiving sight. We should also see our own salvation in this. That this is how we are being saved. And not just that. This is where it gets a little amazing. We've been saying that when a church is planted, a window to heaven opens. And Jesus has been saying in these passages that we are lights in the world, that we shine in the darkness, that, that out of our hearts flow streams of living water, that we are being used by Christ. Christ's church is being used, empowered by the Spirit to do the work of Christ in the places where Christ goes, at the pace that Christ does it, and doing the, nature, the, the, the type of work that Christ has been doing. Ushering in the kingdom of God a new creation in the old world that's passing away. It's an incredible calling that we've been called to. You see it in verse 4. I mean, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, we, right? We, we, Jesus, and he's talking to his disciples. But by extension, he's also talking to us, his church, the bride of Christ. So how do we move forward? How do we go to the places that Christ goes to at the pace that Christ Christ does the work and doing the nature of the work that Christ does. How do we do that without just falling apart under the, the, the burden of the, of the task? Mother Teresa, uh, she went to dark places and worked with great urgency and did the kind of work that Jesus did, feeding the hungry, clothing the poor. Um, and, and yet, at the same time, she, she reveals over the course of her life some really dark times. And I don't want to dive too deeply into her, you know, when someone leaves us, there's only so much you can glean from their life. But her spiritual uh, journal or, or diary um, does, does say a lot. And I'll read a clip of what she says. She says, I call, I cling, I want, there is no one to answer. No one whom I can cling, no one, no one, alone. The darkness is so dark, and I am alone, unwanted, forsaken. The loneliness of the heart that once love is unbearable. Where is my faith? I'm told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Now that's a pretty dark statement that she made, right? And what she's describing, what, what Mother Teresa is describing is an occupational hazard for ministers of the gospel, for us, for me, for you. Because the call to go in dark places brings a lot of despair. It can bring despair into our lives. Paul Miller, considering these words of Mother Teresa, wonders if she doesn't struggle from feelism. Feelism. 
And this is how he describes it. He, he says, feelism is, is where we make our feelings the measure of, of reality. And so in the case of Mother Teresa, she didn't feel Christ's presence. And so she didn't believe that he was there. And the, 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 we did, we've done sonship before at City Press. We did that curriculum. The gospel-centered life that we're going through right now is sort of an abbreviated version of, of sonship. But my understanding of the background of that curriculum, sonship, is that the authors ministered in very dark places. They were missionaries in a very dark, evil place filled with all sorts of spiritual darkness. And they despaired. They had an experience akin to what Mother Teresa describes here. Just, they were rocked by the darkness. And what they did as a result is they wrote this sonship curriculum to try to root themselves, no matter how dark the situation is, not in how they feel about Christ's love, but the, but the objective reality of Christ's love for them. The declared righteousness and sonship that is theirs, whether they felt it or not. And that's the, the whole gospel-centered uh, curriculum is sort of born out of that. So Paul, Paul Miller puts it like this. It's when we base God's love for us on how we feel about His love, it inevitably leads to self-entanglement because we never have enough faith. Looking at your faith will depress you, whereas looking to Jesus frees you. There's no greater cure for the sin-sick soul than realizing we are justified by faith. Justification grounds God's love for us in the finished work of Christ and not in our ability to sense God's love. So here's the point. As we go to the dark places, working at the pace that Christ works and doing the nature of the work that Christ has called us to do, we look to Jesus all along. We see his strength, his worth. I mean, even in this passage, this is incredible. Look at verse one again of, of the passage. Now, if you have your Bibles, you'll see, okay, so he passes by, he sees a blind man uh, that was born blind, a blind man from birth. Now, look at the last verse of chapter 8, which immediately precedes our passage today. What, what, are the, what are the crowds doing? They want to kill him. They have picked up stones to put him to death. And this flows out of that moment. Now, if, if you or I were in the midst of a crowd that was yelling and screaming and literally taking action to take our lives, how do you think we would respond to that? Wouldn't we be a little cynical, a little bitter, a little afraid, a little last thing I'm going to do is help somebody on my way out of Jerusalem? And what is, Jesus moves from that situation to the blind man just issuing life, right? The darkness can't, they, it cannot overcome him. He continues to shine his light in the darkness of this blind man's life. He's poised, he's calm, he's not bitter, and he's still issuing life. It's, it's such a beautiful thing. He's, he's, he's meek, he's not weak, he's meek, he's gentle, he's lowly, he's not bitter, he's not cynical, and he's moving forward doing the healing works of the Father. And that's, that's Christ's rootedness in the love of the Father is what This is what he's saying in this gospel. That's where he's living to do the work that he's doing. And so it is for us. As we do the work of Christ, 
in the places he goes, at the pace he goes, doing the nature of the work, we must root ourselves in Christ's love for us. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not the worth of our faith or how our faith feels, how we feel about Jesus' love, but what he says about it, his love towards us. If our eyes are not on Jesus, if we kind of base things on how we feel about God's love for us, not on what has been declared in the scriptures about it, maybe it's our church attendance, we base our our feelings about uh, doing this work based on our church attendance or our Bible study prowess or our, uh, you know, our just savvy to get things done, to fix things. We won't have the courage to go to the places that Christ calls us to go. We won't have the energy to work at the, at the pace that Christ calls us to work. And we won't have the faith to believe that Christ is actually bringing about a new creation through the work of his people. So it's so important. The gospel's on the move. May, may we be, as Christ calls us to be, ambassadors of Christ in this good news. That God makes his appeal of his love toward the world through us, Paul says. And may that be so. Let's pray. Our Father, we have such spiritual blindness. You've opened our eyes. You've, you've shined lights in our hearts. If we're in Christ, if we believe in Jesus, we've been saved, we've been rescued from that. And yet, there's still blindness that remains. We're not finished. As Taylor spoke of earlier, there's an already not yet tension that we live in. And so we pray that you would make that not yet closer uh, to us in our hearts sanctify us, make us more like Jesus, we pray, so that we can do Jesus' work going to the places that he went, at the pace that he worked, and doing the nature of the, the work that he's called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.